You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to go through the whole chapter this morning. And I'll say as the kids leave, they were wonderful. We went about 10 minutes longer in that opening segment, and they did so well. Good job, kiddos. We'll try and make up some time on the back half is what I'm implying there. By God's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to go through the whole chapter. I won't read it all in the beginning uh, for the sake of time. We'll read it as we work through it. But we're going to get through all of chapter 4 this morning. I heard the story of a former Hindu man who had converted to Christianity and was once giving an address to a number of his fellow countrymen. The people he was speaking to were of a higher caste, a higher social status, if you know what the Hindu caste system entails. He he was a man of lower caste in that culture, not respected or esteemed. But he said to them, I am by birth of an insignificant and contemptible caste, so low that if a a Brahmin should chance to touch me, he must go and bathe in the river for the purpose of purification. And yet, God has been pleased to call me, not merely to the knowledge of the gospel, but to the high office of teaching it to others. My friends, do you know the reason of God's conduct? It is this. If God had selected one of you learned Brahmins and made you the preacher, when you were successful in making converts, bystanders would have said it was the amazing learning of the Brahmin and his great weight of character that were the cause. But now, when anyone is converted by my instrumentality, no one thinks of ascribing any praise to me. And God, as is his due, has all the glory." This man understood what Paul had been telling the Corinthians in these first few chapters. That the power of God to save is not wrapped up in the the ability of an impressive people, but the power of God to save is his alone. It is in the working of God alone. And the Corinthians had trouble believing that. They were a people who were wrapped up in being impressive and listening to impressive people, to impressive speakers, to gifted orators. That was where their emphasis lie, and they thought that, that this was the power of God to speak through talented people, learned people. And because of that, the church had become arrogant, and because of their allegiance to different people whom they prefer, the church had become divisive, and Paul, all through these first few chapters, is really trying to humble the Corinthians and put their priorities and their emphases in the right place. And it all comes to a head with chapter 4. In chapter 4, Paul really tries to uh, take the Corinthians down a peg. That is his goal. So get excited for our job this morning, because our task this morning is to learn how a church can be humbled. When we grow arrogant and proud and divisive and relying on ourselves and our own wisdom and power, we can turn to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians and learn how we can be humbled. So that is my question for us that Paul will answer. 
How does Paul humble an arrogant church? How does Paul humble an arrogant church? How does the Lord, through Paul, humble those who have become proud? And if we are ever in danger of becoming proud, and we inevitably will be from time to time, we can turn here and the Lord will guide us. We'll find there are three general answers to that question, three things that Paul wants to emphasize, three key ideas, things that Paul wants his church to do, to take to heart so that they might become humble. The first key, first thing Paul wants them and us to do is found in verses 1 through 5. And the first key to becoming humble is, one, acknowledge your true judge. Acknowledge your true judge, who it is that truly judges you. Verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul begins by saying, this is how you should assess us ministers, us apostles, those who are teaching you, and by extension, how we should assess all people. Paul wants them to think about ministers differently, not as celebrities, as CEOs, as stars or professional speakers, but as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. That's how they are to regard their leaders, their ministers, as stewards and as servants. And I will tell you, the evangelical world has gotten this wrong. And all you have to do is look at Christian colleges and watch how they're promoting themselves and how they are appealing to your narcissistic desires. Come to our college. We'll make you a leader. We'll make you a world changer. You want to change the world? We do too. Come to our college and we'll build you up and you'll go and win the day. And all of that is appealing to your pride. And I wonder how many Christian colleges and seminaries are giving out the message, come and learn how to die. Because that's Paul's MO. That's the way of Jesus. But somehow our institutions have gotten this wrong. And the books that are being sold, come be a leader of the church. Paul says, no. We're stewards and servants. A steward is somebody who manages an estate under his master. So the master owns the estate. The Lord owns all the property and the steward just runs it. They don't have the authority or the ability to make changes to the plan. They just keep things going. And that's what stewards of the mystery of God do. We don't change it. We don't alter it. We just administrate it and deliver it out. So we are stewards of the mystery of God, servants of Christ. And what is that mystery of God? What's the gospel, right? We've been over this. The mystery of God is this wonderful mystery that God has sent his son to save people in sin. The revelation of God, the chief thing you need to know about God, all you need to know about God, is wrapped up in a suffering servant on the cross. 
the God who loves his people and sacrifices on their behalf. That is the message that Paul stewards. And as a steward, his only goal is to be found faithful. That's his desire, to be found faithful. To whom? To his master. Not necessarily to the desires and whims of those he's speaking to. Uh, you who are in school, when you take a test, who do you take that test for? You have one person grading you. Uh, when I was in college taking biology classes, I didn't take tests for the whole biology department. <laughs> I was taking tests for that professor. And to do well in the test, I had to figure out what he wanted or she wanted. How can I please them? We... As servants of Christ, have one master, one judge. When you reach the end of days and you stand before judgment day, you will not be graded by committee. There will be one Lord who judges you. So, in a sense, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, and that's what Paul is communicating to the Corinthians. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Literally, the word for court is day, by any age. Paul's basically saying, I don't give a rip what you think. That's the the harsh way of saying it, and that will be in line with Paul's attitude here as we go through the chapter. Paul's saying to them, your view of me ultimately doesn't matter because I have a superior judge. I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything wrong. What he's saying in there is, I'm not aware of anything that would be disqualifying to my ministry. Paul knows he's a sinner. He tells us elsewhere he's the chief of sinners. So he's not saying he's perfect. He's saying... I'm not aware of anything that would disqualify me in my ministry, but even then, that doesn't matter. My heart is deceitful. It doesn't matter what I say. I'm not acquitted by my own judgment and assessment. My judgment doesn't matter. It is the Lord who judges. We have one judge. So he'll tell the Corinthians, be careful about your judgments. Don't make severe judgments until the last day. Paul is not telling them, not to be discerning or assess. In the next chapter, he'll tell us how to judge people, how to discipline. Jesus teaches us how to judge one another. He says, do it to yourself first, and then others. So, so what is Paul saying here is that we don't judge at all? No, he's saying, do not assess the success, the fruitfulness of your or anybody else's ministry until the end of time, because only then will it be revealed. Be careful about how you assess success and faithfulness. Because in the end of time, when God who sees all, he sees the wrong and the good, all the quiet things you do quietly and serve faithfully, God sees that, there's the encouragement. All the impure motives of your heart, God sees that as well, and he will deal with all of it in the end. And in the end, God will reveal who has been truly faithful and successful. He knows hearts, he knows motives, and as C.S. Lewis said, in the end, there will be surprises. There will be those who had gigantic, popular, happening ministries who produced very little spiritual fruit, very little that'll last. As Kirk mentioned last week, some stuff will be burned and they'll be saved as though through fire. And on the other hand, there will be those who serve quietly, faithfully. God does amazing things through. 
And that will be revealed in the end. Paul says, be careful then about how you judge until then. We don't know all that God knows. So be humble in your assessment. And to apply that, don't be terribly concerned about how others judge your ministry or your faithfulness. You have one judge, so stay humble. Don't turn into people pleasers. Don't work for others. You work for the Lord, your God. And also, don't think that anybody else should care that much about your judgment. Here's where Paul's trying to humble them. You basically tell them you would be surprised how little I regard your assessment. You might be surprised how insignificant your judgment is. So humble yourselves. Every ministry leader, servant, every Christian needs to have some of this attitude. Not an arrogant, I don't care what you think of me, but a rightly humble acknowledgement that I have one true master and judge, and I please him first. So that while at the end of the day when I fill out my taxes and I look at my W-2 and it says Community Bible Church is my employer, you are not my master. I will be your servant, but you will never be my Lord. That is the attitude that every Christian ought to have, and it is actually good and healthy for the church. If I saw you as my Lord... I will become a people pleaser using you for the boosting of my own ego, not a servant and minister of Jesus Christ. And you need, we all need, those who will minister Christ on our behalf. We have one judge to serve, and that should humble us. Second, what Paul wants the church to know, to humble us, admit your true status. Acknowledge your true judge, and then two, admit your true status. This is where Paul gets his most uh, devastatingly sarcastic, so I'm really excited for it. Uh, I love the way he speaks here. It is brutal, it's ruthless, and it cuts us down to size. Admit your true status. Verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. A glorious passage. 
So Paul's saying, I've applied all this, this, this teaching on humility, this teaching on wisdom and where true wisdom is found. I've applied all of this to myself and to Apollos for your example. So that you might not go beyond what is written. What is Paul referring to there? What is written? Well, he, whenever he says what is written, he's referring to Old Testament scriptures. And I think there are certain Old Testament scriptures that he has in mind, ones that he's already quoted. If you look through the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you can see what Paul has been quoting. When, and when he says, I don't want you to go beyond this, we can look to what scriptures he's quoted. So 1 Corinthians one nineteen, Paul quoted Isaiah 29.14, which says, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul quoted Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which admonishes us not to boast in ourselves, but to boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul quotes Isaiah 40.13, which tells us that no one is wise enough to instruct the Lord, and the Lord's mind is above ours. In 1 Corinthians 3.19-20, Paul quotes Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11, which both talk about how the wisdom of men is futile before God. So do you sense a theme? Your wisdom is insufficient. God's wisdom is superior. Don't boast in yourself. Boast in the Lord alone, who will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And Paul's saying, don't go beyond that. Camp on that. Stay there. And that'll humble you. What reason do you have for boasting? Everything you have is a gift. There are certain games you don't boast in. You can boast in chess. Right? That's a game of skill, of intelligence and knowing your opponent. You don't boast in Yahtzee. It's a game of luck. You just roll the dice and see what happens. That's a game of, well, I'll just take what's given to me. And what Paul is saying is, really, all your life is that. Everything you have has been given to you. The air you breathe, the, the ground you stand on, all of it is God's gift, so don't boast. But that's what the Corinthian church had done. They had thought of themselves as, as great. And we can see that in his sarcastic rant that he goes on here. Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Paul is condemning them with praise. Why is this such a condemnation? Because of the teaching of Jesus that says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Paul's saying you've become satisfied already and you've lost your hunger and your thirst for righteousness. You've become kings without us. You think you've made it. You've got everything you need. You're fully enthroned. No longer sacrificing yourself. You've got all you want or need. There are some who would say that the Corinthians had what we would call an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology, things of the end. And they had over-realized that. They had walked into triumph too soon. And lived in that reality a little too much and forgotten that there is sacrifice along the way. Some of you know people like this. They're... You work with them. They're the people who lunch break too soon. Have you ever moved with those people? Right? You're on moving day and the snacks come out and they're the first there and they take three slices of pizza at lunch while you're moving the couch and the fridge. You're saying, hey, hold on, there's still work to be done. Right? This is the NFL player who celebrates before they actually hit the end zone. 
throw the ball up. I saw this just last week. Some of you have seen that, right? It's the person who's rejoicing too soon, thinking they've got it all made already. And that's what's going on with the Corinthians. And we've got it all figured out. And Paul says, man, that would be nice if you actually did reign like you think you did, because we're suffering here. So you're living it up, living the good life. We're being made a spectacle for all to see as one sentenced to death. And Paul's making a very specific illusion there. He's referencing the gladiatorial arena where their crowds were watching and the competitors were set out as a spectacle and some sentenced to death. Paul is saying, we're down in the pit fighting it out and you're in the crowd applauding thinking you've got it made. You've got it all figured out. Obviously, we're the fools here. You're the wise. We are weak you're strong. We've been dishonored, and you are honored. And again, Paul condemning them through praise. And what does he say in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 28? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul is saying, in all your wisdom, strength, and honor, you're going against exactly the things that God chooses and God loves. Their glory is contrasted with his suffering. We hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our hands. We are persecuted. And when we are persecuted, we bless when we're reviled. We endure. We're slandered and we encourage and exhort. Just as Paul is doing to the Corinthian church, he is encouraging them, though they have slandered him. And then finally he gets to the point and says, we're trash. We've become the scum of the earth, the refuse, the garbage. You want those speakers who have wonderful reputations? Here we are as apostles. We are the scum of the earth. And Paul's point is, this is the true status of those who are in Christ and who are serving him faithfully, not seen as highly regarded and wonderful and glorious, but as scum and as refuse and as trash. You know the name John Wycliffe or Wycliffe. Is that familiar to you? He was a leading figure of the Reformation before the Reformation really happened, about a couple hundred years before the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. He's a professor at Oxford. And he got into trouble because he began to question the pomp the authority, the privilege of the clergy. He saw the clergy and the priests living as kings while the people were poor. And he started to poke at that and question that. He also took up theological disputes with the church, specifically regarding communion and transubstantiation. And he taught against the church at a number of points. He died, actually, of natural causes, which might be a miracle, But after his death, the Council of Constance declared him a heretic, banned his writings and had them burned, and his body was dug up and burned at the stake. They dug up his dead body to be burned to ashes, posthumously made refuse. That is very often what it looks like 
to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Not honored, but despised. The problem we have is everybody wants to be a star for the Lord. But who is willing to be trash for Jesus? We want to be highly regarded. We want to have great reputations. We want to do great things. We want to be well-known. We want to be part of exciting stuff. Who is willing to be trampled on for the sake of Jesus Christ? We so often talk about doing great things for God, and I think very often we'd rather do great things for our egos. The strategy of Paul and Jesus is one of suffering. And Paul is essentially telling the Corinthians, get in the pit with us. Recognize who you actually are, what your true status is as a servant of Jesus Christ. Remember that Christ called you to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not to be so easily satisfied by the things of this world. Admit your true status. The third, more shortly, imitate your true guide. Last key to being humbled as a church and as a people and as individuals, imitate your true guide. Verses 14 through 21, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, I encourage you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Now I'll find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So Paul admits here, I've been speaking pretty harshly with you. But know my heart. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm speaking to you as a father. Paul's using his dad voice. Because there is spiritual children. So he has a special responsibility and an affection for them. And if you read Ephesians 6, 4 or Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, you know that this is what fathers do. They are to instruct their children in the grace of the Lord, not provoking them to anger, but instructing and teaching and discipling in Jesus. And Hebrews 12 says us that any father who loves us will discipline us, will correct us. And Paul says, everyone needs a voice like that. You have a myriad of guides. A myriad is 10,000. He said, you have 10,000 guides. And a guide, that's a specific word in that time for somebody who is a caretaker, most often applied to those who would watch over kids while the parents were away. So basically nannies, right? Who wouldn't be responsible for disciplining and raising up, but just watching over. And Paul says, you've got a lot of nannies. You've got a lot of guides and people who will teach you. You have people who will teach you wonderful things, but you have very few who will speak to you like a father does. And you need that. 
because we're good at collecting guides. We're good at collecting teachers who stay distant from us. We have our favorite authors, our favorite speakers, lecturers, pastors, teachers. We have podcasts and YouTube videos. We have Facebook groups who will tell us all the things that we want to hear. But we have very few people who will get in our face and with Scripture open by the Spirit of God tell us where we've gone wrong. Very few people who will love us enough to correct us and speak hard things. How many fathers and mothers do you have? Have you self-selected out all those who might confront you? That's what the Corinthians had done. We love these speakers. Paul is saying you need fathers, mothers. And Paul has that fatherly affection for them. And he says, imitate me. And he's not saying, you need to be exactly like me. He, again, is telling them, come down, serve, humble yourself, get in the pit with me. He wants the Corinthians to follow their true guide, which is the way of Jesus Christ. He ends verse 18 through 21 with a final exhortation, putting the question to the Corinthians, which way are you going to choose? Are you going to follow this way of Christ or not? Some had become proud and arrogant, saying that Paul would not come. And I think what's going on here is Paul was sending Timothy to them. So it appears there were some Corinthians who say, oh, Paul's not willing to confront us. He's not willing to come here and speak to us face to face. He sends Timothy, who's a lot younger and gentler. But he's not willing to come and talk to us directly. They're like uh, teenagers who are throwing a party while their parents are away. Mom and dad won't come home early. We've got time. And Paul's saying, surprise, I'm coming. And you get to choose in what manner I'll come to you. Whether it'll be with more discipline or with gentleness and love and affection. And when Paul comes, he's going to check on them and check on those who are so convinced of their abilities. And he is going to determine whether they're all talk like professional speakers or are they living by the power of God? Do you have the power? Now, one last important question. What does Paul mean when he says power? When he wants to see power at work in the Corinthian church and when that's what he desires to see when he visits, what is that? What does he mean? He's already told us chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he's saying, I want to see that you are living by the power of God, by the word of the cross. And what is the word of the cross? It is the power of a suffering servant who will die for his people That is the true guide that Paul wants the church to follow. Jesus Christ, your Lord. Will you be humble enough to walk the path of the cross of Christ and die to yourself for the sake of others? All of us want to be part of something glorious. 
The challenge for us here is, will we be willing to die and be part of something despised? And to be humble and be corrected? And be willing to be confronted? To not think of ourselves more highly than we ought? Because that is the way of Jesus Christ. Do we believe that the cross is God's greatest self-revelation, that this is who he is, a Lord with the power to save us from sin and a loving friend who will die for us? And will we walk in the same humble spirit? Paul says that is the way to walk he is your true guide and follow him. We asked, how does Paul humble an arrogant church? Three things he wants the church to do. Acknowledge your true judge. Admit your true status. Imitate your true guide. Look to Jesus Christ, your Savior, who showed us what greatness and power looks like. Would you pray with me? Father, teach us this morning. I pray this first of all for me and for all of us because we need to hear this that we serve a glorious Lord and a humble Savior. Let us walk in that manner, dying to self for the sake of Jesus Christ, humbling ourselves, acknowledging that we have one Lord, that we need not live for the applause of men and women, but we... Lord, we want to live for you in a way that is pleasing to you. We need your grace to do that. We need your help. We have nothing in and of ourselves to, to do this. As Paul said, you give us all things. And Lord, as we do that, by your grace, to whatever extent we walk faithfully after you, Lord, help us to praise you always, for you are the only one worthy of all our praise and honor. Lord, we thank you uh, that you show us the, the true path of life and the true way to glory in the end, by way of your cross, and the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen.